Well, good morning. I know I said it earlier. I want to welcome you to Element Church. We're excited that you're here. And you are here for week four of our series, We Are Element. When you walked in, you were hopefully handed a worship guide, which as always uh, includes a schedule of where we're going in this series so that you can know what topics and what main scriptures are coming up uh, as we study together. And if you pay attention to the schedule, you're also going to know that throughout this series, um, even though we're kind of topically driven, on what it is that makes Element Church unique, what it is that makes us passionate, what, what is behind the heartbeat of Element Church, that we're also sticking with the Gospel of John. And so we're kind of uh, doing two things at once. We're continuing our study of John uh, while also talking about uh, what is, is making you, Element Church uh, unique and, and what's behind the heartbeat of our church. And so um, we have covered a number of topics so far. We talked about in week one, participate faithfully, um, talking about how we need you and you need us uh, as the church corporately. That uh, if we're going to be who God has called us to be, if we're going to do what God has called us to do, then we need each other. And so um, faithful commitment to one another is essential for your own spiritual growth and maturity. Uh, week two, we talked about serve sacrificially, um, that God has called us to something bigger, something higher, uh, and that giving our lives to what God is doing in this world, finding God at work and, and then joining him there uh, is essential to what it means to be a follower of Christ. Last week, we talked about giving generously, that when we have been given so much, it's a natural outflow that we in turn uh, give back to what God is doing uh, and the ministry and the way that he's building his kingdom. Uh, and so today we're talking about growing passionately. And while some of the other weeks maybe have been more outward focused at things you do, we're going to take more of an inward focus today uh, as we continue our study together. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know our mission statement. If you, even if you've haven't been with us for a while, if you've just been with us during the series, hopefully this mission statement is starting to just kind of get ingrained in you. Our, my hope is that if we say it enough, that um, once we start to say it, like you'll almost like roll your eyes like, yeah, 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 we know this. I can say it from memory. That's the goal. So we'll just say it so much until you can't help but uh, have it internalized in you. And so our mission statement here at Element Church is we like to say it like this. We exist to glorify God through whole lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that we want to see God honored in what we do and who we are uh, through life transformation and through that coming through the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christ. While many events can change a life, it's only the gospel of Jesus that can transform a life. Uh, while change makes something different, transformation makes something new. Now, uh, as you're following along with us on the screen, uh, you can continue to do that, or what is a lot easier is um, opening up your Bible app and opening up the events section where you can follow along with our sermon outline. And I'm going to encourage you to do that, not only because uh, lately we've been encouraging you to do it every week, um, but in addition to uh, having our sermon notes that you can follow along with, um, there are some ways that you can respond at the end of the message today. Um, and specifically, as we talk about your personal growth and maturity, there's going to be some links in here that will... Uh, hopefully assist you or help you along the way of when you start to go, okay, I, I think this is all a great idea, but where do I get started? 
Like, yes, I want to grow spiritually. Yes, I, I want to passionately grow um, as, as God is developing me. But where does that start? I have no idea how to get that process started. And we're going to have some resources that will help you. And you can directly link to those resources from our sermon outline today as we get there. So uh, in addition to our mission, that we exist to glorify God through whole lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, at Element Church, we also have four areas of focus, four things that we just want to do really, really well that we believe if we do them really well, uh, it, it will show a sign of health from our church. And so um, we put them together like this, um, and one of them is worship, worship being both corporately and personally, but primarily corporate when we say that. A lot of times we're talking about the corporate gathering uh, like we're doing right now for worship and teaching and encouragement of one another. Uh, another thing that we're passionate about that we want to be great at, that we want to focus on is community. Like we talked about in week one, it's not a, enough to just try to do this on your own. While the Christian life is very personal, it was never meant to be private. Jesus didn't design it that way. Uh, honestly, it's not really an option the Bible gives. That's a very modern, uh, post-enlightenment, Western, 20th century, 21st century American idea. That, that my faith should be mine and mine alone. It should be very personal and private and individualistic. Um, if you believe that or embrace that, you are in the minority of Christians for the last 2,000 years. Um, it's a very Western mindset. Um, really, our faith is designed to work best alongside other people. And we prioritize community through our e-groups here. Uh, missions, that we don't want to be just focused on ourselves or what we do here, but that we want to be focused outwardly. That we want to be pushing uh, back against the darkness in our community and in this world. Whether that means um, taking a hot meal and, and, and praying for uh, someone across the street or getting on an airplane and flying across the other side of the world to share the gospel. We want to be focused outwardly. We want to be on mission uh, in every aspect of our lives so that when you go to work, you recognize I'm not just going to collect a paycheck. God's also called me to something unique and hopefully I can be a light to someone today when you go to work. And so you're always living on mission. That's something that we want to, to be doing. And then finally, disciplines. I mean, that's a word that no one likes, right? That's As soon as you hear discipline, you're like, nothing positive can come from that word, right? Because it either means you're being punished for something or you're like training for something which is equally as terrible, right? Um, I got this Fitbit a couple days ago, um, which I think it's going to help because I've been like checking my steps and then comparing to see how my nieces and nephew, nephews who are like six and seven and eight years old are destroying me and also how like my dad who's uh, nearly 60 is destroying me and so it's helping me to get active more um, but but I don't like training uh, for the most part and so even if you're trying to discipline yourself to get better in something it doesn't always carry a great connotation but but here's why we included this as part of one of our areas of focus for the church because normally when you think about spiritual disciplines like the historic uh, spiritual disciplines of our faith, reading your Bible, praying, uh, right? Things that, that normally we think of when we think of spiritual disciplines. Normally you think of, that's something I do at home that has no business in the church. 
Um, but, but here's why we included an area of focus for us, um, so that the leaders of the church can, can be thinking through strategically what we need to be doing. If, if we convince people, whether that's you or someone in our community, to, to come here on Sunday morning, and, and you, you come fairly regularly, and maybe we even convince you to go to an e-group and get involved in an e-group, and you start going regularly. But if, if that's where it stops, if, if your total investment in the kingdom of God is in attendance, but it doesn't actually ever take root and affect your life on a day-to-day basis, then as a church, we have not done our job. So if you have a gold star for church attendance, maybe you even give uh, every week or every other week in the offering and you go to e-group and when somebody says, hey, we need help with this ministry, we need help, somebody has set up chairs or set up pipe and drape or whatever and you're like, yeah, I can do that. But if it never takes root and affects your day-to-day life, then I don't think we've really succeeded as a church. I mean, we've changed your behavior a little bit. We've done some behavior modification. You know, now instead of golfing, you're at church, right? So we've, we've changed a few things, but really, if it, if it doesn't affect you day to day, then we're missing the mark. And so we, as a church, have it as one of our passions to help you, whether it is convince you of why it's so important or to give you tools and resources to make it easier, that this stuff that we talk about, the gospel, about what Jesus has come to do, what he is doing and what he will one day do so that it begins to take root and affect your day-to-day life. And that's what we're passionate about. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about worship, but a lot about disciplines and the role that has in our lives. Uh, We're going to pick up, this is kind of like part two in the Gospel of John from last week. Last week we were in John chapter 4 verses 1 through 15. So if you remember quickly, Jesus is traveling. He goes into Samaria, meets this woman. Uh, You know, he asks her for a drink. Um, She's like, wait, why are you talking to me? Because you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You're a man, I'm a woman. You know you're breaking like every social rule there is right now. And, And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me for a drink. She said, you don't even have a cup, right? She's like, Real blunt, real obvious, right in the now. Like, you're, I don't know what crazy you're talking, but you don't even have anything to get water out of the well with. You, you need me and my bucket. And he says, the water that I will give will spring up inside of you. And it's going to well up into eternal life. Those who drink what I have to give them will never thirst again. And she's like, whoa, I'll take some of your water then. But last week we talked about this idea of the gift of God. When God gives a gift, it wells up inside of us and begins to overflow to others. And and we applied that into our financial giving last week. That when God has blessed us and gives us so much, that it should do something in us that it wells up inside of us and begins to affect and and, and impact those around us. That's why we give. Uh, We give because God has given so much to us because it allows us to be a part of what he's doing. Um, so we're going to pick up part two in the rest of this conversation. So um, she has just said, uh, yes, I'll take some of that living mighty water that you just talked about. So here's, here's what Jesus is going to do. He's about to, he's about to shift gears on her because she's still thinking literal water. 
She's still thinking surface level. I don't know where you're getting your cup. I don't know what well you're digging or getting your water from, but I'll take some. And she's still thinking at that level. So he's going to take it deeper on her. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, I'm going to read 16 through 26. Then we'll back up. We'll just, we'll talk about a few things. So starting in John chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Um, so we get this interesting exchange. Uh, Jesus and this woman who are alone at the well. And we get a picture of the woman and maybe what she's doing there alone. Uh, earlier, and we kind of skipped over it last week, um, John tells us that it's about the sixth hour, which means uh, the way that, that they used to count time. They started with sunrise. So we're talking about noon, basically. We're talking about the middle, the heat of the day. And this woman is here by herself at the well at a time when no one else would come. You always came in the morning, in the cool of the morning, so that you had water uh, at the beginning of the day to last you through the afternoon. And then you would come back in the evening and get water. That was just tradition. She's here by herself at a time when no one else would be around. And maybe this interchange between Jesus and this woman and what we find out about this woman give us an idea of way, maybe why she chose to come by herself. Perhaps she has a reputation and she doesn't want to have to deal with the gossip and the quiet talks behind her. And she'd rather just come alone. But regardless, the, Jesus and this woman are talking. And they're talking water. And he's talking about something deeper. And she's still talking about literal water. So he says, let's change this up a bit. And, and gets right to the heart. And says, go call your husband. Not that he needed her husband to be there. or that, But Jesus knew what was going on. So she gives this information, and he says, oh yeah, you're right, you don't have a husband. By the way, you've had five, and, the, and, and your live-in boyfriend now you're not married to. And classic, like, understatement of the decade, she says, oh, I think you're a prophet. You must be a prophet. And, uh, and he's like, uh, yeah, something like that. And, uh, and so, so she's kind of surprised, and then notice what she does in verse 20. So Talking about water, Jesus changes the subject. Let's go deeper. Verse 20, she says, uh, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. So she completely shifts gears, which I don't blame her. Like if you're sitting next to Jesus and he calls you out for your relational and sexual sin, you're like, hey, can we talk about something else? Like let's talk geography. Uh, you know, on this mountain, our fathers used to worship here. Like she totally changes subjects. And Jesus is okay with it. He's going to let her do it. He won't bring it up again. It, it never comes up again. And so she says, our fathers used to worship here, but you guys say you're supposed to worship 
there. And so uh, Jesus says to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, here's what I want to notice, is that in two ways, Jesus helps us define what worship is not. Number one, worship is not about a location. So this woman starts this argument. We're going to talk about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans in a little bit. Um, but, but basically, her people had a tradition that they were going to worship God on a mountain in Samaria, which is a region to the north of Jerusalem. But the Jews had a tradition that you worship God in Jerusalem, in the temple, uh, and, and even the city and the temple uh, of uh, Jerusalem are set up on a hill. So, so she says, we worship on this spot, you worship on that spot. And Jesus' response to her is, no, you've got this all wrong. Worship isn't about either location. Worship is not about a location. It's not about where we worship, it's about whom we worship. And then he's also going to tell us what else worship is not. Notice what she says. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And Jesus said, well, a time is coming and is now here when you will worship the Father. You will worship not on this mountain or the other. Nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father at the end of verse 21. So she's talking about our fathers, our ancestors, our tradition and heritage is this. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm going to change the way in which you worship the Father. Now, he could have said a lot of things. I'm going to show you how to worship God. But he, he made it a decision, an intentional decision to say, rather than, I'm going to teach you about worshiping God, I'm going to teach you about worshiping the Father. That it's not about your fathers and your tradition, it's about the Father, the great Father, the one whom we worship. It's not about where you come from, it's about where you're going. And so Jesus says, real worship isn't about your location, and it's not about your tradition. It's not about what you were taught and where you come from. Real worship is focused on something else. So he tells us two reasons or two things that worship is not. In just a minute, he's going to tell us what worship is. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So this is an interesting statement. Now, I want to give you some context. So I've got some maps up here, and I'll explain what they're for and, and how they're going to function. Uh, so the map on the left is um, what this region of the world looked like uh, roughly 900 years before Jesus. Um, and so there's two regions that I really want you to pay attention to that matter. It's Judah in the south. It's kind of this gray one. And Israel, it's green, in the north. So after King Solomon, so you had King David, his son took over King Solomon. After King Solomon, um, the nation of Israel was split into two. You had ten tribes in the north, Israel, 
two tribes in the south, Judah. What happens is in 722 BC, an empire known as the Assyrian Empire uh, come and they conquer the northern ten tribes. They take over Israel. Most of the Israelites, those ten tribes, are either killed or taken into captivity. The Assyrians are then going to retransplant some other people to settle this land uh, on, and rule it on behalf of Syria. The Jews who remain, who weren't killed and weren't taken into captivity, begin intermarrying with these other people. And these other people bring along their gods and their idols and their traditions and their rules. And so what you end up having is you have kind of a half-Jewish, half-non-Jewish group of people in, in both ethnicity and culture. And they become known as the Sumerians. So, uh, later on in 586 BC, the Babylonians are going to conquer Judah. Um, but Judah, uh, they're going to be repopulated. So um, the Babylonians are quickly taken over by the Persians. The Persians allow a great number of the Jews to return back. So what you have is in the south, in Judah, you have mostly pure-blooded Jews who continue to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. And in the north, what used to be Israel is now Samaria, where you have people who are part Jewish, part non-Jewish, who have part Jewish religious practice and a lot of infusions from pagan uh, cults from around the region. And so Jews and Samaritans hated each other. As a matter of fact, Jews had derogatory terms for the Samaritans. They would call them essentially half-breeds because they were half-Jewish. Um, they rejected most of the Old Testament. The Samaritans only continued to embrace the first five books of the Old Testament. The rest they rejected. So there were a lot of similarities, but there were differences. And virtually, Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with each other in the time of Christ. The map on the right is what um, the region looked like in the time of Christ. And so you have Judea in the south, which is where Jerusalem is. Then you have Samaria. This is the region, this is where the Samaritans lived. And then above them, you had Galilee, which is where Jesus uh, was raised as a boy. And so Galilee is a very Jewish location, but it has some, a, a moderate amount of Greek influence. Um, and so when you, talk, when you hear Galilee, when you hear Samaria, when you hear Judea in the Bible, this is what they're talking about, different regions. And so, so here Jesus is talking to her. So the Samaritans had their place of worship. The Jews in Judea had their place of worship, and there was a debate about who's right. They both shared the same first five books, the Pentateuch, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But other than that, they didn't share a lot. And so there was a lot of debate. And so Jesus says this in verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And what he's talking about is that God had made a promise to the Jewish people that through them he would send a blessing that would bless the world. That one day a Christ or Messiah would come. Um, so um, these words are kind of transliterated uh, into our language. So Messiah comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, and Christ comes from the Greek Christos. They both mean the same thing. It's just a Hebrew way of saying it. It's a Greek way of saying it. And then in English, we took both and we just made them our own English words. So Messiah and Christ, 
are the same word. They mean the exact same thing. It just one comes, they come from different languages. And so a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one had been promised to the Jews that was going to come and solve the problem. The problem that all of us deal with. The fact that all of us are not who and how God created us to be. And so notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say salvation is for the Jews or that salvation is to the Jews. Jesus said for salvation is from the Jews, meaning it's through the Jewish line, the Jewish people, the Jewish faith that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one will come to finish what God had started. But he's going to change things up a little bit. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So now he is going to teach us about true worshipers versus what we could say false worshipers. Those who are focused on tradition and those who are focused on location. And Jesus says it's not about those, it's about spirit and and truth. And what does he mean by those? Well, quickly, I think we can get a few clues even from the Gospel of John. Do you remember in John chapter 3? And this has been a while since we were in John chapter 3 together, but when Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And and he says this in John 3 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus had the same response you and I would have had, except for that you and I are so used to Christian terminology that when you hear born again, for I'm guessing for a lot of you, if you grew up in the church, you're like, oh yeah, that's just like another way of being say, of saying you're saved or you're a Christian. Like, but if you've never heard that term and someone said, well, if you really want to see God and him be involved in your life, you'd be born again. You'd be like, what? And that's exactly how Nicodemus responded. He was like, mm, that's weird. Because I'm pretty sure I can't go through that experience again. And Jesus responds in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Yeah, we've all been born once of the flesh, but if you want to experience God, be a part of His kingdom, and have Him rule and reign in your life, you've got to be born again. This time not by flesh, but by the Spirit. You have to be born by the Spirit. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It'll be on the screen for you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. When we're born again, when the Spirit does a work in us, we become a whole new creation. There's this new beginning, just like with physical birth. There's this new beginning when, when the Spirit does something inside of you. And so if we're going to worship God, if we're going to be a true worshiper, then we have to worship in spirit, which means that we have to be born of the spirit. We have to be born again. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, God's spirit has to do a work in us to make us new if we're going to worship God as he's called us and created us to worship him. What does he mean by truth? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you remember, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says if you want to be a true worshiper, 
then it's going to have to come from someone who's been reborn, recreated by the Spirit, and someone who's founded on truth. And Jesus is truth. And so true worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit and centered in Jesus. True worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit and centered in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to worship. That's what real, true worship is. It's not about a location. It's not about tradition. It's about being empowered and born again by the Spirit and being centered and found in the truth who is Jesus Christ. And she says, well, this seems a little confusing, but one day a Messiah or a Christ is coming. He'll explain all this. And Jesus looks at her and says, I'm it. I just did. I just explained it to you. Next week, we're going to take a look at what happens next. What happens inside this woman and how it changes her life forever. And how it's the message of what is about to happen to her has a lot to speak to us. But I want to conclude today by doing the same thing I've done the last several weeks and just making some general observations about worship for us uh, as we conclude. How do we bring this home uh, practically to each one of us? So I have five thoughts on worship. Number one, worship is not to be limited to a time and location or to tradition. Tradition. Therefore, going to church does not constitute what it means for the Christian to be a true worshiper of God. So you came today, and you can be a true worshiper of God in this room, and this can be an an integral part of your worship. But coming here does not necessitate that you have become a true worshiper or that you are worshiping. Because location and tradition do not define true worship any longer. So we have to get out of this mindset of thinking that just showing up or being here has somehow done what we were supposed to do. Now, you, we're about to read out of Hebrews. God has called you to be here. But that's just one step in the process. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have great We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So let me me just decode that a little bit, because that is a very Jewish statement. Uh, even though it's written in the New Testament, it's a very Christian focus. It's, it's like steeped in Jewish ideas, which is why the book is called the, the Letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews being another name for the Jewish people. Um, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened f- for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So inside the temple in Jerusalem, there was a couple sections the innermost section was a cubed space called the holy place or the, the most holy place where only the high priest could go once a year. On the Day of Atonement, he could offer a sacrifice. But that was the only time anyone ever went into this place in the temple. It was separated by a massive curtain, a curtain that was almost 10 inches thick. That's thick. 
And it separated the holy place from the most holy place. And the report that we get in the Gospels is that when Christ died on the cross, that there was an earthquake at the moment he died, and that 10-inch thick curtain was ripped in two. Because we no longer depend upon a sacrifice to get access to God. Now it's through the death of Christ that we have total access to God. And so he has torn this curtain through his flesh. And so now we can enter these holy places by the blood of Jesus, no longer once a year by the blood of a bull. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we no longer depend on other people to offer sacrifices for us and give us access to God. We don't depend on other people to find grace and forgiveness and and connection and reconciliation. Jesus is our priest. We got direct access now. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Before you would ever enter into the sanctuary or the temple, you had to ceremonially cleanse yourself. We don't do that anymore. We don't have to prepare ourselves to meet with God. Jesus has opened the door so that even with dirty hands and a defiled heart, we can still come to God and find mercy. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another for, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some, as some are in the habit of doing, is in the habit of doing, is the habit of some. Get mine and yours reading the right way. But encouraging one another all, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what this writer is saying is, no, your worship, true worship, is not about a location or tradition. But don't think that that now gives you the freedom to, to abandon gathering together. That's still a part of what God has called us to do. Jesus has done the work to make it all possible for us. But don't think that you now no longer need the community. Some are in the habit of no, neglecting to meet together. And this writer is saying, don't do that. So yes, you need to be here. Yes, this is a part of what God has called you to. But don't think that by walking in this room, that is somehow constituted true worship in and of itself. That was thought one. Thought two, worship is the natural outflow, outflow of a person's life if they have the Holy Spirit at work within them and if they are centered in Christ. Number three, therefore worship is not just about singing songs. It is a lifestyle of honor and glory given to the Father through the Spirit and in Jesus Christ. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is about giving. It's about giving to God. Giving your voice and singing is one aspect of worship. What Jesus is looking for is those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit are centered in Christ to honor Him, to worship Him through giving, not just of their voices, but of their bodies, of of your whole self. Giving up your whole self is your spiritual act of worship. 
It's like giving a living sacrifice. We no longer offer dead sacrifices. We now offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. The problem with the living sacrifice is it always wants to crawl off the altar. And this is a daily process that we have to learn how to do. Thought four, if Element Church is going to be successful in fulfilling our mission to glorify God through whole lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we must focus on total transformation, not just church attendance. If we're going to accomplish our mission through whole lives transformed, then that means whole life transformed. And we have to be holistic in about what we're doing and what we're passionate about. And that's from a corporate perspective. From a personal perspective, if you and I are going to be who God has created us to be and called us to be, then daily, intentional, all of life encompassing worship must be central to who we are and what we do. Worship is the natural outflow of a life that's been empowered by the Spirit and is centered in Christ. Jesus has said God is seeking after true worshipers, but don't think that a location or a tradition will determine who that is. Jesus, God is looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And our call and our challenge to you today is to focus on being empowered by the Spirit and centered in Christ so that you can be a true worshiper of God. Will you pray with me?